0: It's time for the What in the Podcast.
1: On tonight's show, join us in the desert as we explore the history of the lost Dutchman mine.
0: And some other interesting things to do with sand and desert.
1: Who knows? Maybe we'll find it, maybe we won't. And yes, after that, Adria has a few other stories involving the sand and desert and other nifty things like that. So stay tuned, listen, and enjoy episode 71 of What in the Podcast? Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington
0: and Adriana Knito and Tracy Lynn Hernandez.
1: Hello, and welcome to the What in the Podcast. That was kind of weird.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, well. Welcome to the What in the Podcast. Um, you know who we are. I'm not going to go into that. How are you tonight, dear?
0: just barely here
1: just barely here well at least you're barely here tracy unfortunately is not here uh, she had one of her notorious migraines
0: mm, it started early and just kept intensifying for her all day so and
1: that's what makes it notorious
0: yes and she gets them all the time we all seem to suffer from them all the time to an extent uh I do. She does. You occasionally, though, not as much as you used to.
1: I used to get them all the time.
0: Oh, I've had them. And see, I've had them since before I hit puberty. And they say, the doctors say you're not supposed to be able to get migraines before you hit puberty because for some reason they they think that or something. Mm -hmm. Or I've been told that. I was like, well, I've had migraines my whole life, just like my mother. Right. Um, My aunt gets them. So I come by all these things naturally. So it's genetically family. And I think my dad even had them before. And his mother. mm
1: Mm-hmm. So, we're joining you tonight, uh, one week after Halloween. Uh, hope you all had a happy Halloween. Hope all you trick-or-treaters got a lot of candy and no one got hurt or or injured or scared or arrested or anything like that. Hope your parties were fun. Um, we didn't do too much. We just kind of hung out with some friends watching... Uh, Horror movies, which were actually we we watched the funny horror movies.
0: Uh, The one I didn't get to watch was Frighteners, and I wanted to rewatch that one, but I'm still looking to find it again. Mm -hmm. Um, We watched uh, what did we watch? Oh, uh, what we do in the shadows. Mm -hmm. High spirits. What we do Do in the shadows. uh, The the movie. We watched the movie on Halloween with our good friends, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Nat and Mike. Had a good time.
1: Not a whole lot of trick or treaters
0: i think they got three groups the whole time yeah so.
1: we're on the outskirts of town so we don't see a lot of trick-or-treaters in our neighborhood yeah, we
0: didn't get any either because when they repaved our driveway they took out our electrical for our lights outside oh yeah outside that's lights. right we were almost three weeks without power it was dark and scary at night
1: well not without power we had
0: power is in the houses but no light no power no lights, lights outside in the whole complex right. it was pretty scary <laughs> dark scary and we get coyotes at night so that's that's even more challenging yeah,
1: so, so imagine poor me for example
0: for god the last three weeks gotta
1: leave at 4 <laughs> 30 to go to work in the dark in the morning going out to the garage and praying to god there aren't, aren't any coyotes about
0: mm-hmm.
1: not that i think they'd bother with me but you know why take the chance but anyway um tonight we're gonna talk about the lost dutchman's gold mine you know anything about that one dear um, Suddenly silent.
0: <laughs> I've heard of it, but I don't remember.
1: Do you want to tell them what you thought it was about?
0: No, no, it's not what I thought it was about. It was, I, it reminded me of something else.
1: Something involving a pterodactyl, yes, but that uh, there's, wasn't there's that wasn't what it was.
0: Story about a pterodactyl and a lost stake claim claim stake gold mine, and uh, I forget where it was. Arizona. Was it Arizona? I think it
1: was Arizona, if it's the one I'm thinking of. Or New of.
0: Mexico. It was somewhere in that vicinity. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for somebody else's claim who had died or something. And uh, they went looking for it. And...
1: and found a pterodactyl instead.
0: Yeah, it didn't actually take anybody <laughs> out. It looked like a pterodactyl or a big dragon or something. I don't know. I have no <laughs> Excuse idea. Excuse me.
1: Anyway, that's where Adri's mind goes.
0: My mind goes to odd things.
1: No, we're talking about the Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine tonight. Um, Let me get into it here. Um, The Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine is, according to legend, a rich gold mine hidden in the southwestern United States. The location is generally believed to be in in the Superstition Mountains near Apache Junction, east of Phoenix, Arizona. So you're pretty close about the location. It's in Arizona. But you're thinking more around Tombstone.
0: I honestly don't yeah. remember. It that's the, the story we're thinking of here. I, I just remember it was a <laughs> guy that supposedly had gold, the gold claim and he mm-hmm. had died. I don't remember all of it. It's like I said, I, I have little bits of here and there and that becomes dangerous because it kind of mixes together in your head.
1: Well, you know, what's famous <laughs> about this mine, right? Hmm. Nobody knows where it is.
0: That's about a lot of mines. Nobody huh. knows where they're at.
1: <laughs> well, I'll get into that too. Uh, there's been many stories about how to find the mine and each year people search for the mine and then some have even died looking for it, too. No one really knows where the, where the mine is at this point. Uh, it's actually named after immigrant Jacob Waltz. And, and the reason why it sounds funny, you know, it, he's a German guy, uh, but it's the lost Dutchman mine they call it. Well, the reason for that is because in the 19th century, anybody of German descent, they called Dutch. And the reason being is because of the German uh, demonym, De- De- I think it's how it's pronounced, Deutsch. You know, a German will call himself Deutsch, so a lot of people reference them as Dutch people. Right. So, the Lost Dutchman is perhaps the most famous lost mine in American history. Arizona place name expert Bird Granger wrote, as of 1977, the Lost Dutchman story has been printed or cited at least six times more often than two other fairly well-known tales. The story of Captain Kidd's lost treasure and the story of the lost peg mine in California we will have to do those sometime in the future. Uh, people have been seeking the Lost Dutchman's mine since at least 1892, while according to one estimate, 9,000 people annually made some effort to locate the Lost Dutchman's mine. Former Arizona Attorney General Robert K. Corbin is among those who've looked for the mine. Um, there are more than one mine that's uh, called the Lost Dutchman, though. Robert Blair wrote there have been at least four legendary Lost Dutchman's gold mines in the American West, including the famed superstition mine of Jacob Walsh, which we're talking about here. One Lost Dutchman's mine is said to be in Colorado, another in California, two are said to be located in Arizona. Tales of these other Lost Dutchman's mines can be traced to at least the 1870s. The earliest Lost Dutchman's mine in Arizona was said to have been near Wickenburg, about 180 kilometers, 110 miles, northwest of the Superstition Mountains. A Dutchman was allegedly discovered dead in the desert near Wickenburg in the 1870s, alongside saddlebags filled with gold. Blair suggested that fragments of this legend have perhaps become attached to the mythical mind of Jacob Waltz. So Granger wrote that fact and fiction blend in the tales, uh, but there are three main events to the story. They are first tales of the Lost Apache Gold, of Dr. Thorne's mine, second tales about the Lost Dutchman, and third stories of the soldier's lost gold vein. The most complete version of the Lost Dutchman story incorporates all three legends. Blair argued that there are kernels of truth at the heart of each of these three main stories, though the popular story is often badly garbled from the actual account. Other stories that materialize that speculate the mine is buried at the bottom of Apache or Roosevelt Lake. In 1977, Granger identified 62 variants of the Lost Dutchman story. Some of the variations are minor, but others are substantial, casting the story in a very different light from the other versions. Uh, In Dr. Thorne's story, members of the Apache tribe are said to have a very rich gold mine located in the Superstition Mountains famed Apache Geronimo is sometimes mentioned in relation to the story. In most variants of the story, the family of a man called Miguel Peralta discovered the mine and began mining the gold there, only to be attacked by or massacred by Apaches in about 1850 in the supposed Peralta Massacre.
0: Hmm.
1: Years later, a man called Dr. Thorne treats an ailing or wounded Apache um, and is rewarded with a trip to a rich gold mine. He's blindfolded and taken there by a circus route and is allowed to take as much gold ore as he can carry before again being escorted blindfolded from the site by the Apaches. Thorne's said to be either unwilling or unable to relocate the mine afterwards. So here's the truth, though, about the Peralta mine. Most likely because Pedro de Peralta had been the Spanish governor of New Mexico in the 1600s. Uh, His family name of Peralta was the inspiration for a number of legends in the American Southwest. James Rivas tried to assert that the Peralta family had a Spanish land grant and a barony granted by the King of Spain, which included a huge swath of Arizona and New Mexico, including the Superstition Mountains. The Peralta Massacre is a legend that Apache supposedly ambushed a, a mining expedition the Peralta family sent into the mountains. Some carved stones in the area are referred to as Peralta stones, and Spanish text and crude maps on them are considered by some to be clues to the location of a Peralta family gold mine in the, in the Superstition Mountains, although others believe the stones to be modern fakes. A lack of historical records leaves uncertainty as to whether a Peralta family ever had possession of the land or mines in or near the Superstition Mountains. Blair insisted that the Peralta portion of the story is unreliable, writing, The operation of a gold mine in the superstitions by a Peralta family is a a contrivance of the 20th century. Sorry about that. Uh, 20th century writers in particular. A man named Miguel Peralta and his family did operate a successful mine in the 1860s, but near Valencia, California, not in Arizona. The mine was quite profitable, earning about $35,000 in less than one year. Blair described this as an unusually good return for such a small gold mine to earn in such a relatively brief period. As of 1975, ruins of the Peralta mine were standing. So that's a mine people know about. So this is probably not the superstition, uh, or the, the, the Lost Sunchman's mine, I mean.
0: So where is that one?
1: The You're Peralta mine? It? Yeah. Supposedly it's in Valencia, yeah. Valencia. Mm-hmm. Not Arizona. However, the Peralta mine eventually became unprofitable, and after the money was gone, Miguel Peralta turned to fraud. Dr. George M. Willing Jr. paid Peralta $20,000 for the mining rights for an enormous swath of land, which uh, equaled about 3 million acres, or 1,200 kilometers squared, in southern Arizona and New Mexico, based on a deed originally granted by the Spanish Empire in the 18th century. Trouble came after Willing learned that the deed was entirely bogus. Despite his efforts, Willing was never able to recover the money he gave to Peralta. This land grant was the basis of the James Rivas Arizona land swindle. Uh, Rivas became Willing's partner and continued to try to prove the authenticity of the land grant for years after Willing's death. That's that, the Peralta story is a story by its... We can do a whole episode on the Peralta story.
0: hmm The California one or the...
1: The California one, yeah.
0: California.
1: So Blair argued that the Peralta story, well known to Arizona residents for some reason, was eventually incorporated into the Lost Dutchman story Mm. in a severely distorted version following the renewed interest in the Lost Dutchman's mine in the 1930s. Since James Revis, the Baron of Arizona, was convicted of fraud when the Peralta family, genealogy, and other documents to support the land grant and a barony associated with the land were determined to be forgeries that also raised questions about the original purchase of the land grant by Dr. George M. Willing, Jr. Uh, The the transaction itself had supposedly occurred at a primitive campsite in the southeast of Prescott without the benefit of the typical documentation. Instead of a notarized deed, the conviction was on a piece of greasy camp paper bearing signature of several witnesses. Willing died in 1874 before, there had been a thorough investigation of the documents or opportunity to cross-examine him on the stand and was later done with Reeves. So, there's a, a lot going on there, which turns out really had nothing to do with the mine at all. But it is a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole story about the Baron of Arizona, that's, that's really involved. It's fun to list to. And someday we should do that one.
0: Well, you know, you're always looking to make lists. For yep, those. Yep. And then you always forget. Then we're, oh, I don't always forget the list. I just haven't made a list this to year. Do. We're trying to, to left trying to figure out what to do next.
1: <laughs> hey, to be fair, I just didn't make a list this year.
0: That's true. Our
1: first year of podcasting, I had it all lists the way down to Christmas. Lists yeah,
0: lists. I'm just teasing you.
1: First of the year, I was good to go. Uh, okay. This year, not so much.
0: I'm still teasing. Us.
1: It's fun. So anyway, here's the truth about Dr. Thorne. Another detail which casts doubt in the story is the fact that according to Blair, there was never any Dr. Thorne in the employee of the army, or indeed of the federal government, in the 1860s. According to Blair, the origin of this story can be traced to a doctor named Thorne, who was in a private practice in New Mexico in the 1860s. Thorne claimed that he was taken captive by Navajos in 1854, and that during his captivity, he had discovered a rich gold vein. Thorne related his claims to three U.S. soldiers in about 1858, Excuse me. Three soldiers set out to find the gold, but without success. Over the decades, this tale was gradually absorbed into the Lost Dutchman story. And I can kind of see where the falseness comes in on this. You've got a man who's actually been held captive and comes back claiming he's found a mine. How is he going to find a mine if he's been held captive?
0: On his way back when he escapes, maybe? Maybe,
1: maybe. Hard to say.
0: Hard to say.
1: So let's get into the story of the Lost Dutchman. This tale involves two German men, Jacob Waltz and Jacob Weiser. However, Blair argued that there is a strong likelihood that there never was a second man named Weiser, but rather than a single person named Waltz was, over the years, turned into two men as the legend of the Dutchman's mind evolved. Blair contended that this story can be divided into hawk and dove versions, depending on whether the German or Germans are said to behave violently or peacefully. In most versions of the tale, Jacob Waltz located a rich gold mine in the Superstition Mountains, uh, and, and in many versions of the story, they rescue or help the rescuer a member of the Peralta family and are rewarded by being told the location of the mine. Wiser is attacked and wounded by marauding Apaches, but survives at least long enough to tell a man called Dr. Walker about the mine. Waltz is also said to make a deathbed confession to Julia Thomas and draws or describes a crude map to the gold mine. Uh, John D. Wilburn, in his book, Dutchman's Lost Ledge of Gold, wrote that the Bulldog gold mine near Goldfield, Arizona, fits very well the description Jacob Waltz gave as the location of his lost mine. Furthermore, Wilburn stated that geology indicates that there is no gold in the Superstition Mountains, which are igneous in origin. However, in some versions, the mine is actually a cache put there by the Peraltas. So not an actual mine, but a storehouse of gold. Mm Mm-hmm. But again, we also know at this point that the Peralta's mine was in Valencia.
0: Mm-hmm. Peralta is also a very common
1: name. No, it is nowadays, that's for sure. It is
0: nowadays. Now and it but probably was back probably then. probably was back then. Yeah. I mean, or fairly common mm-hmm.
1: is
0: what I meant by that, I believe.
1: So, this, this next part of the story involves uh, the soldiers lost cold fame. And yet another version of the tale two or more u.s army soldiers were said to have discovered a vein of almost pure gold in or near the superstition mountains the soldiers are alleged to have to have presented some of the gold but to have been killed or to have vanished soon after see how these tall tales work Mm -hmm. you never actually get the whole story just you know little bits and pieces and, and there's always a reason why no one he yes. said, she yeah, said, it's all lies, usually. I yep. say. Now, this account is usually dated to about 1870. According to Blair, the story may have its roots in the efforts of three U.S. soldiers to locate gold in an area of New Mexico based on an allegedly true story related to them by Dr. Thorne of, the New, Me- of New Mexico. Sorry. Now, let's talk about Jacob Waltz. Blair cited evidence of the historical Jacob Waltz and suggested that additional evidence supports the core elements of the story that Waltz claimed to have discovered, or at least heard the story of a rich gold vein or cash. But Blair suggested that this core story was distorted in subsequent retellings comparing the many variants of the lost Dutchman story to the game of Chinese whispers where the original account is distorted in multiple retellings of the tale. You know how that is. You know, we used to call it telephone. telephone. When we were kids, yeah. You know, you start telling one story, and it goes down the line with all the kids. And, and by the time you get to the end, no ends...
0: sense by the end when you're done.
1: Yep, just like that.
0: We, I think, I think in all the times playing it as a child, there was only one time it came through.
1: Yeah, mostly. Yeah, correct. I'd have to say for myself, there was one time.
0: One yeah. time, I mean, and
1: yeah.
0: it wasn't even completely true; just so close, just
1: off by just a little bit. A little
0: yeah. bit, yeah. yeah. So you're like,
1: wait a minute. That's just that's just when you know you, you everybody's heard it and heard it correctly, because you're just whispering in each other's ears, and it's like, you can't always catch what they're saying. So, there was indeed a Jacob Waltz who immigrated to the U.S. from Germany. Uh, The earliest documentation of him in the U.S. was an 1848 affidavit in which Waltz declared himself to be about 38 years old. A man called Jacob Waltz, uh, that's W-A-L-Z versus W-A-L-T-Z, was born in September 1810 in, uh, if I'm reading that correctly. Blair suggested that this waltz could be the same waltz who later came to be regarded as the legendary Dutchman and that he Americanized the spelling of his family name. Note the tombstone pictures show the birth year is 1808. Waltz relocated to America. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry. He's already here. He's already here. Yes. (laughs) Waltz relocated to Arizona in the 1860s and stayed in the territory for most of the rest of his life. He pursued mining and prospecting, but seems to have had little luck with either. An alternate view, which better fits the lost mine legend, is that he periodically appeared with large amounts of gold. Yeah?
0: Nothing. Oh. I remember this story now. It finally clicked in my head. It <laughs> started
1: to click. Okay.
0: It's the guy who, he was bringing stuff in and and, and very secretive. And then suddenly.
1: Everybody saw that he was bringing gold bringing and didn't, know, didn't where know where it was coming, coming from. from. Yep.
0: And so he, on his deathbed, he said it was a mine or something. Yep. Yeah. I remember this one.
1: The Sterling Legend by S. D. Knatzer Kna- 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 reports that a Jacob Waltzer sold $250,000 in gold to the U.S. Mint during the 1880s and had $1,500 when he died in 1891. In 1870, Waltz had a homestead of about 160 acres, or 0.65 kilometers squared for you people who use the proper systems. (laughs) Excuse me. Near Phoenix, where he operated a farm. There was a catastrophe flood in Phoenix in 1891, and Waltz's farm was one of many that was devastated. Afterwards, Waltz fell ill. He was rumored to have contracted pneumonia during the flooding. He died on October twenty fifth, eighteen ninety one, after having been nursed by an acquaintance named Julia Thomas. Yeah. That's the one I mentioned earlier. Um, which she was usually described. I don't know why this is important. She was described as a quadroon. I don't know <laughs>
0: because race back then.
1: Yeah, race was an issue. I suppose
0: was an issue.
1: I just don't know why it's referenced here in the story. But anyway, Waltz was buried in Phoenix at what because is now
0: whoever told the story first told it like that
1: probably. But as as I was saying, Waltz was buried in Phoenix at what is now called the Pioneer and Military Memorial Park. Blair had little doubt that Waltz related to Thomas the location of an alleged gold mine. As early as September 1st, 1892, the Arizona Enterprise was reporting on the efforts of Thomas and several others to locate the lost mine, whose location was told to her by Waltz. After this was unsuccessful, Thomas and her partners were reported to be selling maps to the mine for $7 each. So they couldn't find the mine, so they decided to make a profit off of the mine by selling fake maps. (laughs) So there's more to the story. So we're going to go into the death of Adolf Ruth next. Uh, Were it not for the death of amateur explorer and treasure hunter Adolf Ruth, the story of the lost Dutchman's mine would probably have been little more than a footnote in Arizona history as one of hundreds of lost mines rumored to be in the American West.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: American West. Sorry. I cannot talk tonight. Uh, Ruth, you been
0: on your toes there, dear?
1: No. It's, maybe it's the anchor tooth. I don't know. <laughs> Ruth disappeared while searching for the mine in the summer of 1931. His skull with two holes in it identified as bullet holes was recovered about six months after he vanished and the story made national waves made national news sorry i did it again thus sparking widespread interest in the lost dutchman's mine in a story that echoes some of the earlier tales ruth's son erwin c ruth was said to have learned of the peralta mine from a man called pedro gonzalez Uh, according to the story in about 1912 erwin c ruth gave some legal aid to gonzalez saving him from almost certain imprisonment. In gratitude, Gonzales told Erwin about the Peralta mine in the Superstition Mountains and gave him some antique maps to the site. Gonzales claimed to be descended from the Peralta family on his mother's side, which is probably why he did it anyway, if that's true.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Erwin passed the information to his father, Adolf, who had a long-standing interest in lost mines and amateur exploration. The elder Ruth had fallen and badly broken several bones while seeking the lost peg leg mine in California. Uh, he had metal pins in his leg and used a cane to help him walk. It must be hard to explore mines when you, when your legs all messed up like that.
0: Yeah, my thinking, my, my, my question is, with all the advanced topography we have, with all the satellite footage, and, you know, why nobody started trying to see where these things are?
1: Well, I mean, we're talking the 1930s here. I mean, though,
0: Currently. All these lost mines, why people aren't looking for them.
1: Who's to say they're not?
0: You never hear about it, though. True. Sorry. I just, it was a curiosity. But I mean, something like it just that. just popped into my head.
1: There's mines strewn all over the place, but nobody knows what they are. They could be empty caves. They could be veins. They could be anything, really. Topographical maps and satellite imagery is only going to show you so much, you actually have to get in there and explore them.
0: Well, if you think about it, though, there's, there's ground-penetrating radar and sonar. Mm-hmm. I, all these things that didn't have, there wasn't in the 1800s that it is now, and people are—I don't know if anybody's looking for stuff. It just makes you wonder who's doing it, <laughs> or if anybody's even doing it at all.
1: You know? Right, right.
0: So it's I, just a curiosity thing. We should look into it. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: see. Sorry.
1: Okay. Um, anyway, in June of 1931, <laughs> as I said, this is the 30s, so no satellite imagery.
0: I'm not talking about that. I'm talking. I understand about that. I will oh, forget it. We're okay. I will stop talking to you now. This is
1: me saying goodbye, everybody. No, 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 it's not. You can stop there right now. So, in nineteenth June, Ruth set out to locate the Lost Peralta Mine. After traveling to the region, Ruth stayed several days at the ranch of Tex Barkley to outfit his expedition. Barkley repeatedly urged Ruth to abandon his search for the mine because the terrain of the Superstition Mountains was treacherous even for experienced outdoorsmen, let alone for the 66-year-old Ruth in the heat of the Arizona summer, with pins in his leg, walking with a cane and a
0: limp.
1: <laughs> and a limp. However, Ruth agreed. Uh, he ignored Barclay's advice, actually, and set out for a two-week stint in the mountains. Ruth did not return as schedule, and no trace of him could be found after a brief search in December of 1931. The Arizona Republic reported on the recent discovery of a human skull in the Superstition Mountains. Remember how they found the skull, right? Mm. Two bullet holes in the head? Oh, yeah. To determine if the skull was Ruth's, it was examined by Dr. Alice Herdlicka. I think that's how it's pronounced. A well-respected anthropologist who was given several photos of Ruth, along with Ruth's dental records. As Kurt Gentry wrote, Dr. Hrdlicka, it's a hard name to pronounce, folks. I'm sorry because there's, uh, it's the name's all consonants and very few vowels. Literally, the first, the first, uh, three letters of the word are hrd yeah i don't even know the nationality for that so anyway dr hurdlicka positively identified the skull as that of adolf ruth he further stated after examining the two holes in the skull that it appeared that a shotgun or high-powered rifle had been fired through the head at almost point-blank range making the small hole when the bullet entered and the large hole when it exited so, you know, when they said two, I thought it meant it had two bullet holes in the head. But now it's an exit and an entry wound. Okay. It
0: was, if it was an entry exit wound like that, it would have been point blank. He, he, somebody snuck up on him or somebody he trusted killed him.
1: Shot him in the back of the head, yeah, probably, yeah. Probably. In, uh, Jan- Depending
0: on where the bullet hole was, yeah. Yep, yep.
1: So in January of 1932, human remains were discovered about three quarters of a mile or 1.2 kilometers from where the skull had been found. Uh, Though the remains had been scattered by scavengers, they were undoubtedly Ruth's. Many of Ruth's personal effects were found at the scene, including a pistol, which wasn't missing any shells. So, not his gun. No, his gun. Remember, he was shot from behind. he wasn't
0: shot with his gun
1: as well. No, not with his own gun. You're right. And the metal pins used to mend his broken bones. But the map to the Peralta mine was said to be missing. Tantalizingly, Ruth's checkbook was also recovered and proved to contain a note written by Ruth where he claimed to have discovered the mine and gave detailed directions. Ruth ended his note with the phrase, Vini, Vini, Vici. I came, I saw, oh, I conquered, yep. Yeah. Authorities in Arizona did not convene a criminal inquest regarding Ruth's death, though. They argued that Ruth had probably succumbed to thirst or heart disease,
0: Yeah, that gaping bullet hole, yeah. Yeah, it made him thirsty. It made him thirsty.
1: (laughs) Though, as Gentry wrote, one official went so far as to suggest that Adolf Ruth might have committed suicide. Oh, that's a possibility if the bullet was in the front. I don't know if it was the front or the back. So, while the theory did not ignore the two holes in the skull, it did fail to explain how Ruth had managed to remove and bury the empty shell, then reload his gun after shooting himself through the head. Yeah. That's a good question.
0: Therefore, he probably didn't kill himself, right. but they're trying to like cover something
1: up. Nah, just trying to, to write it off as suicides and say, point done, probably. So Blair noted that the, that the conclusion of the Arizona authorities was rejected by many, including Ruth's family, and those who held on to the more romantic murdered for the map story, which I'm kind of more inclined to believe myself.
0: Map's gone. It
1: makes more sense.
0: Yeah, The map's gone. He's got two bullet holes in his head. Yeah, how would, seriously, the gun. The only gun found
1: is his own and it's still loaded. It's still loaded. Right.
0: Not missing a shot. Obviously, he didn't kill himself. Exactly. Not really. So
1: Blair wrote that the National Wire Services picked up the story of Ruth's death and ran it for more than it was worth, possibly seeing the mysterious story as a welcome reprieve from the bleak news that was otherwise typical of the Great Depression. So throughout the 20th century, various expeditions, sorry folks, Adri's trying to be funny and making me laugh, and she's doing a pretty darn good job of it. But anyway, throughout the 20th century, various expeditions and individuals continue to search the superstitions for the Lost Dutchman Mine. One of the most professional and serious-minded efforts was led by Oklahoma City private detective Glenn McGill, who organized multiple expeditions in the late 1960s and early 70s and claimed on at least two occasions to have identified the location of the mine. Later to concede, he was either mistaken or the locations were played out or bereft of gold. McGill's adventures were chronicled in the book The Killer Mountains by Kurt Gentry. Now, since Ruth's death, there have been several other deaths or disappearances in the Superstition Mountains. Some searchers for the mine have disappeared in likely wilderness accidents. Yep. In the late 1940s, the headless remains of prospector James A. Cravey were reportedly discovered in the Superstition Mountains. He had allegedly disappeared after setting out to find the Lost Dutchman's mine. In, the, in his 1945 book about the Lost Dutchman mine, Thunder God's Gold, Barry Storm, which is the pen name of John Griffith Clemenson, claimed to have narrowly escaped from a mysterious sniper he dubbed Mr. X. Storm further speculated that Adolf Ruth might have been a victim of the same sniper. So there's somebody out there guarding guarding the treasure, possibly. In late November or early December of 2009, so we're getting we're getting closer to home now. Denver, Colorado resident Jesse Capen, 35, went missing in the Tonto National Forest.
0: Where's
1: that? Uh, probably in the general area. His campsite and car were found abandoned shortly afterwards. He was known to have been obsessed with finding the mine for several years and had made previous trips to the area. Capon's body was found in November of 2012 by a local search and rescue organization wedged into a crevice. The program disappeared, covered the case, mentioning others in the episode The Dutchman's Curse.
0: So he probably fell in that crevice, got stuck and died.
1: Or somebody killed him and popped him into the crevice.
0: If it had looked like foul play, somebody would have said something. Was that a sniper? Oh, there would have been bullet holes something would have been said
1: uh what i just said didn't make any sense anyway we're talking 2009
0: 2009
1: versus 1930s that's quite a long time for a sniper to be watching Unless that it's ridge. a
0: family legend passed down from person to person mm,
1: could be who also. knows
0: so, but the um no the the guy that cut off his own leg to get out of the crevice when he was rock climbing oh that yeah that athlete i mm-hmm. guess so there's or something like that so i mean he may have slipped and fallen looking for the mine and gotten trapped or mm-hmm. died of starvation. He's or... wedged
1: in the crevice. That's all we know.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so anyway, on July, one more, one more here on July 11th, 2010, Utah hikers, Curtis Merworth, Ard- Ardian Charles, our Charles, sorry. And Malcolm Meeks went missing in the superstition mountains, looking for the mine. I
0: don't want to go anywhere near those mountains. <laughs> Not even want... for a beautiful. There's a reason they're
1: called superstition. Mm-hmm. Um, Murworth had become lost in the same area in 2009, requiring a rescue. On July 19th, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department called off the search for the lost men. They presumably died in the summer heat. In January 2011, three sets of remains believed to be those of the lost men were recovered. So there's all that. Now we'll talk about the, the state park. In 1977, 292 acres abutting the Tonto National Forest, were set aside as the Lost Dutchman State Park. The park expanded to 320 acres in 1983. It's easily accessible about 40 miles east of Phoenix, Arizona. I'm sorry, yeah, via U.S. Highway 60, the Superstition Freeway. Hiking and camping are popular activities. There are several paths that go through the brush and cacti, the short Discovery Trail is a clear route with several placards giving the natural history of the area. So, mine, State Park, all that land out there. Lots of people coming, but not coming back. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if it wasn't haunted before, it probably is now.
1: <laughs> probably. <laughs>
0: like it probably is
1: now. Now, let's see if I can figure out why they're called the Superstition Mountains.
0: It's just a curiosity. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's see here.
0: Maybe a lot of people go missing.
1: The mountains were once the, known in Spanish as Sierra de la Espuma, or the Foam Mountains.
0: The what mountains?
1: The Foam Mountains. Foam. Yes, Sierra um, like de la Espuma.
0: Foam. Like sea foam, mm-hmm. probably because are they? I wonder if they're white capped, like sea foam. Maybe it's
1: Arizona. They. The pictures I see, they don't look all that white-capped, actually. <laughs> At the all. Winter.
0: They might be in the wintertime,
1: though. Well, I don't know. Most of these I pictures are, are green and, mm-hmm. and desert-like. So I don't know. so the legend of the Lost Dutchman's Goldman, we talked about that. Um, it centers around the Superstition Mountains. Um, some Apaches believe that the hole leading down into the lower world or hell is located in the Superstition Mountains. Winds blowing from the hole are supposed to be the cause of severe dust storms in the metropolitan area. So that's why it's called that. That's yeah, usually how the case goes. you know. It's usually uh, a tribal lore or something like that that gives something its name. No, but, anyway, yeah, but anyway, that's all I got on that. Um, would you like to regale us with something, dear? Commercial information is complete.
0: Back to the show. I've got a few things. Buried Egyptian Temple in Guadalupe. You are here to please me. Nothing else on Earth matter, said Cecil B. DeMille to his expectant crew as they sat in the sand waiting... The start of production on his biggest extravagance to the date.
1: He really was a ballbuster, wasn't yeah, he?
0: Yeah, he was. The <laughs> film was to be the first incarnation of the Ten Commandments. DeMille remade the epic in 1956 with Charlton Heston, the legendary director, with the outsized with the outsized ego, had a massive complex built for the initial part of he the story. He had a massive
1: complex, all right. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> Portraying Hollywood's idea of ancient Egypt. The year was 1923 and the sleepy town of Guadalupe on the central coast of California was suddenly a neighbor to a bustling metropolis of over 5,000 souls for a few mi- just a few miles away on the Nito- N- Nip- Nipomo. I can talk dunes. The sheer size of the set dwarfed anything yet produced on film. DeMille was a stickler for reality in a scene he had directed years earlier. He once used real bullets when actors had to shoot their way through a door for a Western. He spared no expense for his commandments. Parts of the film were shot in the new two strip technicolor process to show off the elaborate Pharaoh's palace. In addition to its skyscraper like heights, the palace was 720 feet long and featured an Avenue of the Sphinxes with 21 five ton statues lining the Royal road. There, there were also four statues of the pharaoh all over 30 feet high. The city was surrounded by an 80-foot wide and 120-foot high wall covered with hieroglyphics modeled on those on Earth just the year before in King Tut's tomb. At the close of the production, the director had workers tear down the set and bury the whole thing. Apart from any egocentric issues he may have had, Harvard, DeMille was protecting his creation from interlopers. It was then common practice for low budget companies to use sets that major studios had left behind. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very no, they common. Did that all the time. Oh, it, espionage. It was a film. The film had. Look, look m- at Ed Wood. Yeah. He was notorious of, for that. Tons of espionage.
1: Yeah. Um, lots of things stolen from prop lots and closets and all well, that not, stuff. Yeah. yeah.
0: The plaster and wood detritus lay partially buried under the shifting stands for almost 60 years until a few film buffs, armed with cryptic information from DeMille's posthumously published autobiography, began to search for the buried city. They found it soon enough, but have been hamstrung since the mid-1980s, lacking funds to finish the excavation. Expected help from Hollywood community has not come to pass. Despite an initial ten thousand dollar donation from the Bank of America, one of the original finance financial backers of the film, the dunes shifted a few feet a year, alternately revealing the covered covering up f- Sphinx noses and <laughs> arrows' toes. The blaster props have the consistency of blue cheese and require a soak with hardening preservatives before they can be moved. Coins, bits of Costume and even an empty bottle of cough medicine uh, favored during Prohibition for its high proof punch have been excavated. Yeah, that was during Prohibition. Mm -hmm. The Nature Conservancy has (coughs) stewardship of the area now called the Guadalupe Nimpomo Dunes Complex and plans to leave the artifacts in place until more money is donated to mount a systematic dig. Ground mapping radar has revealed at least 12 of the swing statues. Some of the plaster pieces are on display in the Dunes Visitor Center on the main drag of Guadalupe. And curiously enough, in the local auto parts and hardware stores up the street, where owner John Perry easily slides into his role as self-appointed Civic Booster. His store is a homegrown version of the official exhibit featuring books, other pieces pulled from the sands, and a phalanx of glass cases to hold it all. Perry will give exact directions to the main ruin area, although there is not much to see. The views from Nipomo Dunes Nature Road give little hint to what lies below, a scattering of lumber and rounded plaster fragments emerging from a massive hill "'were all that was visible in May two thousand five. Cecil Bundemill's temple sleeps beneath the shifting sands, as it has done for more for almost three quarters of a century waiting for a rebirth that Hollywood bigwigs have so far failed to provide. Guadalupe is located along Highway 1 in Santa Barbara County, eight miles east of Santa Maria, and the 101 Freeway. The Nipomo Dunes are due west, approximately six miles from town on West Main Street.
1: Can you imagine if archaeologists in the future were to actually finally dig up that set and there were remains?
0: It would confuse them. Actually, those remains would be plastered.
1: They'd be plastered. So they wouldn't but be... So they, look, they would look at that
0: and go, huh? And see,
1: They might be of Egyptian quality, if not actual make, and wonder if the Egyptians didn't migrate to America at some point. Mm,
0: they'd know it was all fake stuff, though. So.
1: Maybe. Or maybe the Egyptians just just discovered different ways to build.
0: You keep dreaming,
1: I, buddy. <laughs> no, I, I just. I'm amazed by... <laughs> Everything that went into productions back in the day. I've
0: seen pictures of the starlets leaning, smoking mm-hmm. in their costumes. They were uh, uh, leaning next to this, like sitting on the side of the sphinxes, mm-hmm. and I, they're online. I've seen them, and these are the, you know with the short hair and the you know vivid eyeliner and the the headdresses and stuff. Right, they're just sitting there smoking. Pretty as you please. What well, the they pictures got they're,
1: are and they're sitting there in these huge sets Sets
0: around them. Yeah, it's yeah. gorgeous. It's you know all yeah. black and white pictures, but beautiful.
1: Yeah, and that's not and that's something that you don't see today. No, you want a big set today? It's all on green screen. It's computer now, well, generated. Now, they
0: save money, some money. Yeah, but not all of it. Nobody actually saved.
1: really builds sets anymore.
0: That see, I'm that's why I liked Corpse fry and Nightmare and. Coraline, and all these things that were done with those stop, are sets I love miniature, stop yeah. motion. Miniature stop motion. I love it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not it's not green screen. It, right. And green screens has its place and everything, but it's all the effort that took to make those movies and make them great. It's right. just amazing. These huge sets, it. you
1: will never see anyone constructing these sets. Anymore. Oh, ever
0: again. Never it's again. It's
1: cheaper to go
0: Lord of the Rings CGI. would be completely CGI if, it, if Jackson hadn't done it in New Zealand mm-hmm. at all. I mean, he... he, ha- he still love those movies yeah. sorry <laughs> still love those and movies and
1: for that we're grateful very grateful yep. yes so you got anything else you want to talk I to have about I a
0: couple others I can talk about um, okay. uh, this one's Frenchman's Tower in Palo Alto it's a little one here uh, somebody's tale uh, my friend's family has lived in Palo Alto in the area of Palo Alto for generations and showed me Frenchman's Tower something only locals know about it was built in 1875 by Peter Cootes a mysterious Frenchman whose farmland is now most of Palo Alto and Stanford University. It's located on Old Page Mill Road in Palo Alto on a quiet one-lane residential street. As you drive past the goats and trees, you suddenly find a red brick tower to your right. I would say it's about 30 feet tall and, uh, and only about five feet or so from the road. You have to climb over a barbed wire fence that is obviously bent from previous explorers. My friend's mom told me that in the 70s, the daughter of the Stanford of Ludwig's director was kidnapped and they found her body there. Sad. The weirdest Mm -hmm. thing about Frenchman's Tower is that nobody knows why it's there. Most people think it was meant to be a base for a water tower, but the windows suggest otherwise. Others think it was part of a network of secret tunnels, a weapons cache, or a prison for the mad Madame Coots. According to the nearby plaque, it was begun... In 1875, as part of Peter Coote's irrigation system, his real name was Paul Caperon, and he was a wealthy newspaper publisher. Publisher who was banished during the Franco-Prussian War. He fled to California in 1874. The historian at the Palo Alto Library believes it is a folly, a decoration to mark the boundaries of the properties and provide interesting scenery. Whatever it was originally built for, became a very pop prof- became very popular for people to visit. And carve their names and years on the outside bricks. The dates go back over 100 years, and some people return decades later to carve it in again. Jocelyn Laney. Okay. Um, I can go on if you want. Sure,
1: do us another one. we got Uh, a little time still. Let's see.
0: Let's talk about, Ah. okay, we'll talk about this one. I like this one, and there's still no definitive proof on why it does it. Um, The place where the rocks move. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you're tired of sand dunes, dangerous abandoned mines, and yet another interpretive sign, there's only one place left to go in Death Valley, the place where the rocks move. A few rough miles from the end of the paved road lies one of the most weird and beautiful locales in this most desolate of national parks. It is complete with uh, rocks that race each other, leaving tracks at their own... otherworldly movements behind for passerbys marvel at um people have tried to get footage of them moving mm-hmm. there's no camera but they they've moved the night before and whatnot but it's right. danger uh,
1: uh no one really knows why they no move.
0: one knows why they move mm-hmm. and there's there's lots of speculation but um what was I saying? but the temperatures and the conditions get so dangerous at night in death valley way below it gets below freezing mm-hmm. so it's so dangerous um there go. Okay, I lost. Most packaged tours in the blue haired crowd stop at the spectacular Uvi volcanic crater at the north end leads to the lip of this quarter mile deep hole. A track cuts off through the lava and recedes to the southwest. An unassuming sign posted at the intersection reads the rock or the racetrack dash 27 we're talking racing rocks and they're Mm -hmm. 27 slow miles away about an hour of bad washboard gravel road rewards your vibrating eyeballs with the sight of a beige smear along the bottom of a huge valley there is no camping allowed in racetrack valley so this is a dray trip or a very dangerous drive out in the dark your highly developed aesthetic sense of thrills at the simplicity of the scene a sizable conglomeration of uplifted bedrock called the Grandstand jets up from the center of the ancient dry lake, uh, which stretches to the base of the bare mountains that surround it. Step on the dried mud and look at it closely. The floor of the valley is a is covered with countless fingers of tiny cracks stretching to the horizon. You could follow one of these infinite cliffs anywhere to the playa without stopping. Be thankful you're not on, on psychedelics or this would be sensory overload. I can imagine. Yeah. It's about a 10 minute walk from the first pullout area and ubiquitous park service information sign to the grandstand. The blackish brown outcropping about a hundred by 500 feet still resembles the island it once was. The demarcation between dry mud and hard rock is gradual and rings the formation like a soft halo. Climb up the 100 feet or so to the top and have a look around. The dark, rough rock is stippled with beautiful pattern of lighter, reflective strips of mica compound. It's positively hallucinatory. Don't look for the traveling rocks here. This is just the prelude. The Hardy might want to make the two to three mile walk to the southeast end of the racetrack to see the main attraction. Laziness or heat in the summer months draws others back to the car and a short hop south to the next pullout sign. Walk almost due east for 15 or 20 minutes across the lake bed until the floating, shimmering black dots on the horizon resolve into hundreds of very dark, scattered rocks. The mysterious rock race apparently moves at glacial speeds, and no one has ever witnessed it actually happening, but the evidence is clear. Smeared depressions all end at a rock. Some of the tracks are hundreds of feet long. It's as if some spectral hand decided to use the mud as a doodling pad. A few of the tracks are ramrod straight. Others curve, zigzag, and even turn back on themselves. It's like those magnetic toys. Mm-hmm. You know remember I'm talking, like, when you draw with the magnets? Yep. Except the rocks are the magnets. <laughs> uh, I lost my... It's creepy and exhilarating at the same time. Many of the rocks have even pushed up a lip of dried mud in front of them which blows away the rocks moved by wind pushing across frozen surfaces idea the nail in the coffin is that the fact that the only that only a very few appear to have moved in the same direction selective winds how the hell did these things get out here anyway some are at least a half a mile from the nearest mountain perhaps they've been traveling for millennia In his excellent book, The Rebirth of Pan, author Jim Brandon remarked that the mudflats are honeycombed below ground with abandoned mine tunnels and theorizes that some kind of force is present in these places. There are at at least three other racetracks on other dry lakes, and he delights in the apparently pointless lark of moving rocks when no one is looking. There are rumors that there have been attempts to photograph these rocks in time-lapse, but We could find no evidence of such a study. The rangers hadn't heard of such a project. Some of the tracks stop in mid-slide with no rock to be seen, which suggests stupid human activity. Apparently someone has moved a number of the rocks. Don't spoil the fun for the next tourist. And if the ranger catches you, there is a very heavy fine. Riding a bike on the dry lake is also a big no-no. No mechanized transportation is allowed in the designated wilderness. Rangers hide in the hills and appear out of nowhere to, to get scofflaws, so behave.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, while you were reading that, though, I was actually looking at the National Park Foundation website. Uh-huh. And according to them, though, they do say that in 2014, the scientists were able to capture the movement of the stones for the first time using time-lapse photography.
0: Okay, well, this book was... was. Well, I
1: know I know what the book no, says. No, I want
0: to see when the book was done. Give me a second, because I don't well, anyway, know. Anyway,
1: while you're looking, the results strongly suggest that the sailing stones, as they're called, are the result of a perfect balance of ice, water, and wind. In the winter of 2014, rain formed a small pond that froze overnight and thawed the next day, creating a vast sheet of ice that was reduced by midday to only a few millimeters thick. Driven by a light wind, the sheet broke up and accumulated behind the stones which slowly push them forward.
0: Mm.
1: So at nighttime, it gets moist, the ice forms up. Daytime comes around, the ice starts to thaw, gets behind the rock and pushes it forward, according to the time-lapse photography.
0: Why can I not find date on this thing? Sorry. I'm That's
1: still- Okay. The book probably is a little older than 2014.
0: It, it is. I think we've had this <laughs> thing quite a while. Um, but this is
1: what the parks say, too. Maybe the parks are making it well, up. Well,
0: you no, know, I'm just saying there. I remembered watching video footage of them, and they were out there trying to – they left their camera.
1: Keep talking. It's they left okay. their
0: cameras out there, uh, and I don't remember. Maybe it was the 2014 study that I'm talking about. But you and I watched something on this, and I don't know if it was a travel channel thing or sci-fi, back when sci-fi was doing stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Um, But I happen to remember them. I, I remember the video footage they showed everybody and they had their cameras with the night vision stuff set up and um, trying to see stuff. And they had several cameras out there. So uh, did you find the year?
1: Yeah, it's 2006.
0: So, yeah, this is definitely older than four. <laughs> At that
1: time, they hadn't done the time lapse. Yeah,
0: so.
1: So. so now you get the whole story.
0: <laughs> um, if you believe it.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, well, there
0: was actually, they talked about the ice because they were talking about the ice being debunked a couple of times too, because of something with the mud or something. Well, like. you know how
1: it goes someone yeah. comes up with a theory, someone tests the theory, somebody proves the theory, and then somebody denies, denies the it. theory. Yeah,
0: there's. <laughs> yeah.
1: Which is just the way of it with, with anything paranormal.
0: That's true.
1: So, but anyway, um, let's move on to something else reviews. Okay. I was looking at the Apple Podcasts, um, and I noticed that. Granted, I don't look at them very often. We're bad. Yeah.
0: Sorry. And I
1: apologize to anyone who has left a review. I do care that you've left a review, and I'm very happy that you have.
0: Thank you. I just
1: don't always check. So, we're, but I, we're bad. But I wanted to take a look at it tonight, and and. Thank the, the the reviewers who have sent a review, and to let you know that I have noticed that we have another review on here.
0: We pay attention; it just takes a while. We're thick headed.
1: Yep. <laughs> uh, this is from someone called Rar three hundred six, little R, big A W, little R three hundred six, uh, and he. This is back in September.
0: Sorry. Yeah, sorry, guy. <laughs> or girl.
1: Or girl. We do mean to to check up on this, and I'll try and do better in the future. But anyway, the review said, great show. This is a must-listen podcast. Great hosts, great topics, great interviews. You won't regret it.
0: Thank you. Yes,
1: thank you very much. We appreciate the review. We do. Also, since we started the podcast, we now have 13 ratings. I
0: think
1: it was 15. No, 13. Uh, And they're all five-star reviews.
0: So thank you for taking yes. the time. We thank
1: appreciate it. Now, if you haven't done it already, and you please. do listen on Apple Podcasts, we do beseech you, please
0: <laughs> leave <laughs> us a review.
1: I don't care if it's good, bad, or indifferent. Leave,
0: we like we like feedback.
1: Yeah, just for the feedback alone, leave us a review. Leave us a rating
0: and, a review. and, and please, a review. Please don't be mean, nasty. I mean constructive criticism. Constructive
1: criticism is Not best. Nasty. And if you can, tell us who you are and where you're from.
0: Yeah, or get on our Facebook page after after you review. Let us know that you did it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and we'll you know. We'd love to hear time. you guys
1: and have some more interaction with you. And again, this helps us move up through the ranks too. So our podcast is discovered by more people. Yeah, that's what we really want is more listeners. We you know we want to. Yep,
0: yep. We're lonely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we miss people. People who are there <laughs> People
1: who need people are on Facebook, I guess.
0: Apparently. Apparently. Now it's meta.
1: Yes, now it's meta.
0: I'm not sure how I feel about that. I feel I, old. Well, is I feel. But, well,
1: the company is meta now. Facebook is still Facebook. Uh,
0: from what I understand, they're going to change the name of Facebook, too. They want to
1: turn it into a virtual reality world.
0: I know. Well, I don't know how I'm that's sure, going work. I'm
1: not sure how I feel about people,
0: that. I, I call it FaceSuck for a reason because we spend more time on that than interacting with other people. Well,
1: that's just it. You don't I interact with anybody to. as it is, and now you want it, now they want people to interact in a virtual environment. Which is all well and good, but you're still interacting with the people.
0: I don't want an Oculus. I don't want something that can spy on me exactly. in my home. Yep. that makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Very nervous.
1: Yeah, the I Oculus. And if you have is... an
0: Oculus and you enjoy it, that's that's all fine and good for you.
1: Yeah, but you got to consider the fact that that the Oculus sees your environment. So, it's taking taking notice of what's in your home, things yeah, like that.
0: It makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. It makes me nervous.
1: I don't know. I won't do it. So before we close out the show tonight, do you want to do one more? Sure. Okay.
0: Singing sands and booming dunes. It sounds like some kind of tall tale, but the phenomenon of booming dunes has been documented in scientific journals since at least the 1960s and in oral histories from the Middle East and Asia for thousands of years. The sounds have been variously described as roaring, booming, squeaking, and singing. Some have been compared to such musical instruments as a kettle drum, zither, trombone, bass, violin, and trumpet. The amazing thing is that the sound is felt rather than heard and seems to come from everywhere and nowhere. The phenomenon of NAD, a Sanskrit term signifying transcendental astral, physic or paranormal music may have some of its origin in the occurrence of these Dune tunes. Yeah, we ha- we heard about this phenomena years ago when a friend reported mysterious harp-like music he heard over the wind late at night during a solitary desert camping trip. He had had no idea where this eth- ethereal sounds were coming from. Only seven places in the continental United States are permanent home to the singing sand concerts, and one of these is in the Mojave Desert on the way to Vegas. Two others are in the far reaches of Death Valley National Park. All the locations have been closed to dune buggies and other assorted sports for many years. The only way in is to hike. For plain old sand to emit an, unearthly sound, the scientists tell us that several exacting factors need to be present. The grains have to be round and between 0.1 and 0.5 millimeters in diameter. I lost my... Uh, The sand has to contain silica, and a certain stable humidity must be present, typically less than 0.1%, depending on the size of the grains. The farther the material has traveled to its present home, the better, since as a result of wind and buffeting action against the ground and other sand grains, the individual grains are usually more uniform. Kelso Dunes, about 30 miles south of Baker, is is perhaps the quintessential Singing Sand Hangout. Certainly in California, possibly in the world. On a drive south from I-15, the landscape is typical SoCal desert with Joshua trees and the usual scrub stretching to the horizon. Eventually, the land begins to slope downward and the dunes heave into view. About eight miles after the town of Kelso, a seemingly uninhibited place with an incongruously large railroad yard, signs indicate the turnoff to the dunes. Don't speed on the washboard gravel. Nearly ir- invisible in deep, dry creek beds, cutting across the road, will total the, the suspension of the hardiest vehicle. The main sand hill is 650 feet high, is visible from the road, and is a strenuous hike from the last turnaround. There are a few methods to get in to get the sand to perform, but in 1979 report report by Caltech scientist D.K. Half. Probably gives the best instructions. The most spectacular and enduring vibrations are produced by.
1: As she flips the as page. As I flip
0: the page because I'm <laughs> reading this. The movement of a large. Okay, did I skip the page? No. no. Produced by the movement of a large large quantity of sand. This could be initiated by vigorous kicking at the the sharp dune crest in order to dislodge the metastable surface layer on the the lee slopes English translation go to the top of the dune and kick sand down the steep side make sure that the day is calm since wind will not only mask the sounds but also tends to make for unstable conditions that keep the sand from cascading evenly on a recent expedition we discovered that just walking along the crest of the highest dune will elicit a sound not unlike a tuba making each step a musical experience Panamint Dunes, a mere three-mile hike from the dirt road, is located in the Panamint Valley, just over the mountainside mountains west of Death, Death Valley on Highway 190. This dune field has the least amount of reward for singing sand tourists, likely due to the shape of the grains, the least amount of, and the presence of the underground water close to the surface. Eureka Dunes, however, beats out Kelso in photo finish. Eureka is a is at the end of a bone-jarring 44-mile drive over a graded dirt road. The dune field features all the booming activity found at Kelso, albeit with less volume, but the best chance for solitude, which may be the most important thing.
1: Would you like to hear it?
0: Oh, you have the sounds. I
1: found the sounds, yes.
0: Cool. Play it for everybody.
1: Okay. answer to hear it here
0: oh the hum yeah Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you can really hear that is that what you were listening to while i was reading yeah (laughs) (laughs) he had the phone up to his ear listening to something i was like what are you doing what are you doing
1: so i don't know how you folks at home heard that but
0: maybe you can uh
1: but it's a, Post a link look it up page. on YouTube. Yeah, it's a, basically the it's musical sand dunes make booming sound. That's the title. And of there's it.
0: that nice hum underneath all the shifting.
1: Yeah, or just look up the booming doobs, dunes on YouTube. You'll find it. It's really easy to find.
0: Yeah. <coughs>
1: Well, that was fun, but I think we should probably call it a night. This is going to be a short episode, folks. So Sorry. Sorry it's not our, our usual length, but uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, I spent the last hour, a couple hours before the podcast scrambling for an idea. I just spent the whole week. Couldn't think of anything.
0: What uh,
1: about next Yeah. Um, next week, we are going old. to be dark because I get old. <laughs> <laughs> Older. Older. That's the case, yeah. <laughs> Uh, It is going to be my 54th birthday this year. Uh, I actually turned that the day we podcast. So that's why we're going to take the day off. We're going to celebrate my birthday instead. Maybe. Um, You know, if you you feel the need, wish me well on my birthday. Go ahead. If not, that's fine, too. But just know that we will be dark next week. Uh, We will have another episode the following week, which will be, uh, if memory serves... Let me think here. The nineteenth, I believe.
0: The Thursday after the eleventh.
1: Yep. Friday. Friday Happy after the 11th.
0: Veterans Day. Since we're not going to be next week.
1: Yep. Yep. Happy Veterans Day to all you veterans out there. Thank you for your service. Thank you. And to the rest of you, all I can say is it's time to cue the gremlin. What in the Podcast is a part of the What in the Podcast Network and is available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other great podcast formats. You can find us on Facebook at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. If you have a great story idea or have a personal paranormal event that you want to share with us, email us at whatinthepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com with your story, or you can leave us a voice message by clicking the link in the episode description. If you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. It doesn't seem like much, but it helps us more than you can imagine. What in the podcast is also made possible thanks to our sponsors and listeners like you. Thanks for listening.